0: Go up, his fiance fucks his butt. Whoa. Ronnie goes slow. Whoa. You don't want to tear your hole
1: up his old asshole where he shits. <laughs> Ronnie sticks those big fake dicks. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that nice? So there Very you go, nice. Ron. A home welcome. run yesterday. Thank you so much. You're welcome, man. um Let's go to Adam. Adam, you're on the air. Adam is in uh, New York. What's up, Adam?
2: Yes. Listen, I'm the last person to defend Ronnie. I think he's, like, the most loathsome person on the show. But you got to stop gay-shaming him, Howard.
1: Not gay-shaming him.
2: There's tons of... You are, though, because there's tons of straight guys who love stuff in their ass. Ronnie is clearly heterosexual. He's in love with Stephanie. He's been with Stephanie all these years. He's just kinky. And I feel like you're trying to make him feel bad about the fact that he he enjoys the feeling of having this thing in his butt.
1: Well, first of all, let me clarify gay-shaming. I... I see nothing wrong with Ronnie being gay. I uh, embrace... Uh, <laughs> I don't. If you're gay, you're gay. Let it fly, not baby. I'm gay. Gay.
2: I'm not.
1: i mean, why he not? doesn't make
2: a guy gay to want a dildo in his bed.
1: Well, I didn't say makes him gay. I said, I'm I trying to find out how open he is. Uh, like, in other words, the, 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 the uh, demarcation between Stephanie holding the dildo or working the controls to the dildo. So I'm trying to figure out what the line is That's for a Ronnie. a question. And, and, and also, yeah, you have to admit that Ronnie question. could potentially be on the gay spectrum.
2: No, that's where you're wrong. There's nothing Maybe about I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm head. asking.
1: Listen, I'm probing. I'm a, like I'm, a Ronnie gay, and Stephanie. I'm a gay
2: guy. I'm a gay guy. I don't want to dildo up my ass. I've never been into sex toys. Being into sex toys does not make you gay or straight. It's who you're attracted to. He's attracted to Stephanie. He's attracted to women. That's what makes him heterosexual.
1: But you must admit. Period. The fantasy of spreading one's, putting a pillow under one's back, spreading your legs as like a woman and having a a penis type substance go inside of you is a gay fantasy.
2: Even if that's the truth, he's not gay because he's with you. So let's find out where he is
1: on the spectrum. What are you so uptight about? You're the uptight one, not me. Because
2: I. I'm not uptight. Believe me, the things I've done, I'm not uptight. I'm just saying, right. you've got a lot of straight guys out there listening who are getting scared off of experimentation because you, you know, are making it them feel like they must be gay if they want something in their butt. So Listen, many straight guys want stuff. In their having
1: butt. closing me. my eyes, spreading my legs, and imagining a dildo in the shape of a penis in my ass would put me somewhere <laughs> on some spectrum somewhere. That's no, all. Sure I you mean, too, yeah. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I mean. I uh, I fantasize about my penis going into a woman a lot, uh, as Ronnie does. But also, I don't have that same fantasy about spreading my legs and having a man enter me. Uh, A a dildo, excuse me. Not an
2: erogenous zone for you.
1: Yeah, your butt isn't a erogenous zone for
2: so many guys. It
1: is. (laughs) All right, very good, Adam.
2: You're you're different, man, back there.
1: That's right. Everyone is different. All right, Adam. Thank you. Ronnie, Listen,
2: I support you in your experimentation. Take whatever you want up your ass.
1: So do I. Do, I. Really. I, I I support him in it. I hope he, I we want him get, to take. We a,
2: make cocks for him.
1: I we. Not only do we make cocks for him, I want to build a male robot for him. So the the man can fuck him. <laughs> I mean, what's the matter with you? I'm open to all these things with Ronnie. I want to go down that path with Ronnie and explore what he's up to. That's all. <laughs> no, no, no man, no man. A Sorry. robot. It's not a man. It's just I, in the well, shape of a man. It's That's a man me. robot. Yeah, and so is that dick. <laughs> all right, look, Ronnie. All I'm saying is, congratulations on another great segment. You, you made the show yesterday, and, and kudos. That's all I'm saying. Thanks, Ronnie. I want to thank, thank our you. sponsor. Yeah, and thank you, Ronnie Puppet. Thank yeah, you.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think I'm
1: pregnant by Stephanie.
0: It's
1: weird to go from Marianne, Marianne to Paul McCartney. Said, I mean. Yeah. Uh,
2: that's a Anything. hard transition. That's what they call yeah. that, a hard transition.
1: Yeah, it's not a good segue. <laughs> well, uh, I've never disguised my love for Paul McCartney. Uh, what a genius. What a man.
0: Look at are you. you talking about yourself? <laughs> no, I'm talking
1: about you. You know how I feel about you. There's no disguising it. I'm in love with you.
0: Oh, Howard, you say that to all the boys.
1: Paul, are you ever... Bored, in the sense that I envision inside your head, there's a constant, con- there's a constant concert. Be- because you're a master at music, uh, I would imagine there isn't a moment in the day where you go, you know what? I don't know what to do with myself. Am I correct on this?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's correct. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, at the moment I've got loads of things going on, so that takes up all that. But if I haven't got loads of things going on. I still have got loads of things to do um, that I'm always meaning to get around to, and it may just be watching television, but, Do you feel you know, whatever, you know, I, I'm always doing something.
1: Do you feel like you're running out of time? I have this feeling about my, you know, my, like, I feel like there's so much I want to do in life yeah. and you, you know, and you think, well, you've had this full life, but you never quite feel like you can get to everything.
0: Yeah, no, I know what you mean. But uh, I think it's a fallacy. I think, you know, you've done loads of stuff. I've done loads of stuff. So um, but I know what you mean. Yeah, you just feel a bit of a clock ticking down. Yeah. You no. Know? Um, but I think, you know, it's inevitable uh, that the clock will run down. And I think I just look at it and think, well, I've just got to have a good time. I just got to do stuff that I really want to do, you know. And that was what happened with Lockdown rock down over here um, where I started just playing with some songs and, and stuff that I hadn't finished and stuff like that and not meaning to do an album. It was just finishing up some tracks and then having a good time in the studio because I love just going in and thinking, right, what are we going to do today? I know, Tape Loops. Great. And then suddenly it's a song, you know. Um, So, yeah, I mean, time's running down, but we're having fun.
1: You know, um, I thought I was thinking about um, the other day we were on the air and I want to talk to you about this new album you have coming up because I see you as going full circle. You have moments in your life where you suddenly go, I know what I need to do. I need to not only write songs, but I need to perform every instrument on the song and that's what i love about the first mccartney solo album i love that like you are at a time your life the beatles broke up what do i do with myself i'm in a depression i don't know what to do you go to this barn with a four track and you say i'm going to play every instrument and put out an album and and oddly enough that's what you're going to do on your next album that's what the, the album that comes out friday will be that and i think that's an amazing accomplishment are there instruments you can't play? In other words, do you ever look at that process and say, why am I playing drums here? Why am I playing bass? There are guys who could do this better. Or do you just say, fuck it, I am that good. I can do every <laughs> instrument perfectly and play what I want in my head.
0: <laughs> it's not quite like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I do it for fun. Tell you the truth. I mean, I do love drumming. Um, you know, and I, I never had a kit of drums. But when we were in Hamburg as kids, as the Beatles, there was always a drum kit on stage, and you know, um, in between, you know, in intervals and stuff. I would say to the, or before the the, the club had opened, I'd say to the drummer whose kid he was, "You might have have a bash around." So I got pretty good, you know. Um, at at a very simple thing, you know. B- b- I can do that or, you know what I mean? I can do very simple stuff. Um, and so I love it. So what happens is with, this, with the new album, like you say, um, I had some songs and I couldn't get the band in, which was like similar to after the Beatles because we'd split up in that case. Um, so I just thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll have a go on the drums. And then I can play guitar. And I can play piano. So that means you can play synthesizer. And that means, and I can play bass. I'm actually quite good on bass. Paul, But you, you know, see- so you just, you just play them and, and for the fun of it. It's a really fun uh, process. Did you ever
1: struggle with any of these instruments? And the reason I ask that is, I think for you, music comes so easily. That, that you could master every one of these instruments not just the bass, if you just mastered the bass and could sing and write music, you'd be a genius. But the fact that you could play drums, the fact that you can play piano, the fact that you can switch over to any kind of guitar, uh, be left-handed, sing, and also write these songs, do you look at other musicians and say, why are they struggling? This is not that hard. Or do you understand how difficult it is? It, It really, truly comes so easily to you.
0: Yeah, I, I do understand that it's not easy. Um, but I, I'm just lucky, you know, there's been certain things in my life, like drums was the Hamburg thing where I got to knock around on drum kits. And uh, eventually, there, one of the guys, Tony Sheridan, said to me, Will you sit in? His drummer hadn't showed up. So I, you know, was actually drumming on stage. Um, but, uh, Other things have just come about. I mean, again, when I went to Hamburg, it's all the Hamburg show. When I went to Hamburg, I had a a terrible, crappy little guitar, but it looked good. So I kind of thought, I'm looking good, rock and roll. Well, the thing broke, like, after about two weeks. It was, like, not well made. So it, it smashed, and I couldn't. I had no instrument. So I there was a piano on stage for, like, the other group, so... So I just started and I'd had a little piano at home, so, so I started learning songs on the piano. So it goes back a long way. You know, there's always like some default reason why I why I've done it. Um yeah, so but it really but, but, is it's but, like a hobby. I love but, these things. But to me it you mm. know
1: I, I took piano lessons as a kid and it was a disaster. I mean to be able yeah. to well, well, is it true that you wrote When I'm Sixty Four when you were 15 years old on a piano?
0: Yeah, we had a piano in the house. <laughs> Crazy. Um, my dad was dad was a great player. and right. uh, So I wrote the tune. I didn't write the words. Those came, came later. But I had the... I had that. Um, I was just fascinated, you know, with music. I mean, like I say, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a, such an exciting adventure for me. This whole idea that you can sit down and there's nothing except you start playing and then there's a song. You know, I find that magical.
1: Were you perceived as brilliant as a child? In other words, were, I asked Elton John this, and he said, "Yeah, I was considered a prodigy." Elton was able to play the piano. He was playing in bars when he was a young boy. Uh, were you considered a prodigy?
0: I mean, when you sit down, no. right? When I'm, you were not. No way. No, I mean. It was crazy because we had a music lesson at school, but um and I also tried like you did with the with the old lady, trying music lessons. Right. Uh, but I didn't like it, you know, because all it was was do 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 the five finger exercise. Do 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 do. Think how long can we keep this up? You know, she never even struck a chord which probably would have got me interested anyway. So I gave that up Um and, you know, it sort of, it just went on. But then I say we had a music lesson in school and I swear the music teacher used to come in and you're talking about probably 20 or 30 Liverpool guys were like, you know, aged 14, 15, 16. And we don't give a shit, you know, I mean, we're not, we're not bothered. So that we're, you know, little rogues. Anyway, what used to happen? The teacher would come in and there was a, a record player and he would put on an album of Beethoven and he said, I want you to just listen to this, boys, and I'll be back in a minute and I will ask, we'll have questions. Well, that was fatal. So <laughs> immediately we took that record off, got the cigarettes out, posted a <laughs> guard on the door, and, and then he came back, wafted all the smoke away. And he said, "What did you think of that?" I said, "That was really great, sir. <laughs> was, I love that Beethoven guy. Mm. Was, what a great tune, you know." So that was my musical education: the, the five finger exercise and this guy. So, no, I was not any kind of prodigy. Uh, but but, we but, but get Paul, when you were fi- in the beginning.
1: yeah, but when you were fifteen and you sit down and you start to play this, you know. Okay, uh, granted, it doesn't sound this finished, but the tune, I would think somebody would say, hey, this kid's onto something. You know, it's such a, I mean, it's so sophisticated for a 15 year old.
0: Well, the, the, when you say somebody, there was nobody around. Nobody so cares. It was just me playing it, you know, at home. And uh, so nobody ever noticed. I, I the, the only person I ever noticed was John. And, you right. know, I'd be, be talking to people. And uh, they said, well, what do you do? I said, well, you know, I like swimming and and my hobby is like trying to write songs. And they'd go, "Okay." Anyway, what about the football? You know, nobody was remotely interested in this idea of I wrote songs. It wasn't special uh, until I met John. And then he said, you know, um, know, whatever it came, I, I said, I've written a few songs. And he said, oh, so have I. So it was like oh, amazing. Someone's amazing. interested at last. And that's what <laughs> and at started that, it all. And, and
1: you know what else is weird about music? It brings people together who normally would not be together because the way I understand it, John was in the band, the quarry men. Yeah, you kind of I mean, you're a year and a half younger than John. So, you know, at mm. that age, a year and a half when you get older, it's no big deal. But at that mm. age. John's the big guy. Like that's somebody you look up to. Hey, I can hang with this guy. You thought he looked cool. You thought he was cool. You thought the Quarrymen sucked, but you thought John was good, right?
0: <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'd seen him around Liverpool. I'd seen him. You know, he'd he'd got on a bus uh, once, and I said, "Whoa, look at this guy! <laughs> had the big sideboards. You know, and the hair swept back. I thought he looks. He's, he's got something going. Got um, look." Yeah, I definitely, definitely had a look. And so when I met him, uh, it was great. I was looking up to him. I wasn't that impressed because he smelled of beer. And I was a little <laughs> bit younger and I wasn't too keen on this big smelly breath leaning over me. But, uh, we, we, you know, we got together and I got. they wanted me in the band. So funnily enough, I said, well, let me think about it. I'll get back to you on that. I didn't immediately just go, yeah. Really, so, yeah. So it was like wow. I was I was on my bike. I was cycling along up near John's area, and his friend Pete came down and he said, "Hey, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute." He said, "They want you to join the band." Should, can I tell him? Yeah, I said. Well, I don't know. Let me think about it. You know, <laughs> you're busy. And so I took it took about a week. <laughs> I'm busy yeah. doing nothing. Right. So I took about a week and then got back to. and said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do that."
1: What was your hesitation? Why wouldn't you join the quarry, man? I mean, this is this, this, uh, You this. know,
0: I'm like that. I'm like that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I don't rush into things. I, I think I'm allowed to have a minute to think about it. Because right. wait a minute, you know, uh, do I want to be in in a band? I'd never been in a band. Do I want to be in this band? Um, or whatever, you know, so I just took the luxury. It was, you know, having a few days. And then I decided, yeah, you know, we could do something with this band.
1: And I would imagine John was scary to you in a way because, you know, you came from a family that there was love. There's a, you know, John's background was so screwed up between not getting to live with his mother, uh, I, you know, or, I, father. Or, or father. And I yeah. was wondering about that. Like when John's father, see, you you know, this. And I was reflecting on John. I did a whole tribute to John the other day because it marked yeah. his, uh, would have yeah. been you know, the anniversary of his death and everything. Mm. But when John's father came to meet him after the Beatles were famous, now here's a guy who had nothing to do with John. Mm. Were, were you present? Did John come to you and say, can you believe this fucking guy? John, my father wants to meet with me now that I'm famous. The guy's not had a mm. thing to do with me. What was that Um, like?
0: No, you know how it happened was I knew his father had left John and and his mother when John was three, and I (laughs) knew that was a huge pain for John growing up. Um, And John went to live with his uncle and auntie, and then the uncle died. And so John confided in me. He said, you know, I think I, I could be a jinx against the male line, and I had to sort of talk him down off the edge. You know, I said, no, you're not. That's stupid. You know, it, it wasn't your fault your bloody father left. Anyway, so we were um out in his house at Weybridge where I used to go out there and uh, write with him when a message came through for him from a journalist we knew who said, oh, by the way, John, your dad is at the local pub and he's, like, washing dishes and he, he'd quite like to meet you. You know, and John was like, what the f- and uh, he, was, he was kind of annoyed, but at the same time intrigued. What is this guy like? You know, I've never met him, but I'm his son. And is he still a bastard? Or is he just a lovable old rogue who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with? Um, turned out to be the former.
1: Mm. He, was, uh, he was someone that John could not fathom having a relationship with.
0: No, it just didn't work out. I didn't really, uh you know, keep tracks of it too much. I just knew John was going to meet him and then that it had fizzled out. John just wasn't that keen. And, and, you know, obviously we all thought, why has he come back now you're rich and famous? Could there mm-hmm. be an answer to that question? You know, and it's like, oh, come on.
1: Was there? Did John's father say to him, "You know, hey, I'm living in poverty here. I'm washing dishes. Can you help me out?"
0: Yeah, I do wow. believe that happened. You know, Jesus. So uh, you know, and it's kind of you—you're ashamed of that kind of behavior of someone yep. because you want to love them and you want you want them to be okay, even if they've not been okay. You know, you want it—you want it to work out. Um, but I think John was pretty ashamed of the whole thing, you know. And again, he, we got, like you said, you know, John did not have a great, uh, life, uh, in that department, in the family department. Um, so even after his dad's left at three, his mother's got killed in front of the house. He's now staying at, um, by run over by a car. And then all those years later, his dad now shows up and wants money. So, you know, it, it wasn't, wasn't great. And I think that led to a lot of John's angst. Um, you know, when he and I were together, there wasn't a lot of that because we were just friends and we were doing stuff and we were being creative. But, um, I mean, a song like help, I remember sitting down and writing this with John and he'd come up with the, uh, when I was younger, so much younger. Uh, and I suddenly realized, okay, well, so we're talking about an insecurity thing, but this is great. It's a song. But at once we'd finished it, we were very happy with it and recorded and everything, but it was only later when I thought, wow, you know what? That was a real cry for help. He really meant it. You know, whereas I think, oh, it was just a song. Um And there were so many things like that about John's life that – uh that, you know, I could sympathize with. Um, and it, But it took till later for me to get it. Because, you know, we're kids, we're writing songs, we've got teenage years, hey, it's, uh, you know, age of love and all of that in London, and we're just grooving around. It's only later that you start to think, wait a minute, what about that? You know, and you start to draw conclusions from it. Do
1: you think because of you, I, I mean, again, I think, having that musical relationship with you saved his life because when you have no father, a mother who didn't really spend time with you, uh, Mm a tremendous tragedy, you know, you don't know where your life could end up. You could end up a criminal for God's sake, but that musical thing saved Mm -hmm. him. And, and, and you're right. Help was probably just a really a cry for help. You know, I think that's one of the things again, maybe I'm playing psychologist, but I think that's one of the things that broke up the Beatles. When John looked at you, you were one of the few people who knew who the real John Lennon was, not the Beatle, not the famous guy. And sometimes when you become famous, you, want, you don't want any of those people from the past who saw the horror of it all. You, you were the one person, really, who he should have turned to, I think, because you knew the real him and loved him back before all the fame. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he could handle the mirror that you represent to him.
0: Well, I don't know. Um, you know, you are playing psychologist there, and I'm not sure whether you're right. Um, I know I was very lucky with my family background because it was it was really great. I mean, yeah. you know, uncles and aunties and sing songs, and, you know, it, it was it was great. I've, I realize now how great it was. But it, it was a good thing, though, because when we were mates, um, if John had a moment of insecurity... Like we all do, I would be able to kind of talk to him about it and be able to say no and listen. And I remember him saying, "What am I going to be thought of uh, after I've died? What what people going to think about me?" You know, and he was worried about it. And I said, <laughs> "You are kidding me!" I said, "You're kidding, man. You're a, you're a legend already. Never mind when you die." And I I had to reassure him, you know. So. But that was a real nice thing about our relationship, that um, that um we, I think we respected each other. So I think more of the reason at the end of the Beatles why he wanted to get out was he'd met and fallen in love with a strong woman, Yoko. And right. I believe he had to clear the decks. I don't think it was because we had something on him. I think it was more just a question of, He's got. To, I've got to clear the decks here because I need time and space for this woman, who he was just madly in love with. You know, they they were a, a great couple.
1: Do you think, at the beginning, I'm talking about when the Beatles first hit? You know, and you're playing all these. You know, uh, the, the Beatles become this phenomenon right from the start, almost. Do you think he resented that you were the quote unquote cute Beetle, that you were the 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 hottest guy? <laughs> like it was. Because I remember reading that John wouldn't even wear his glasses on stage. He was concerned about how he looked. I mean, as all performers are, you want to, you know, you, you mm. certainly want to be attractive, put your best foot forward. But you mm. had this branding of being the cute Beatle, which I imagine you didn't like because in a way, being cute means, Oh, I'm not a serious musician. And maybe You're John right. resented it, right? It was there. A I, couple-
0: I, I, I hated that. I mean, that's what happens. You just, he's the cute one. I go, No, I'm yeah. not. <laughs> no. Don't call me that. I hate that, you know. But yeah. once it's said, it kind of sticks. Um, but I just can't help being cute, Howard. <laughs> hey, <yeah, laughs> Robin, am cursed. I right? Uh, you're absolutely right. Come on! Oh, don't <laughs> Come ask on. her.
1: She she really thinks you're cute. I mean, like in a big way. I mean, it's it's outrageous. Um, but uh, you know, I, hey, the no, other... they had
0: to just uh, they had to just say he's the cute one, he's the quiet one, he's the witty one, and he's the drummer. <laughs> yeah, because I think of you as this brilliant
1: musician. I don't think about the music you've written, the, the, the way you play the instruments, the, your voice, the way you sing. How many gifts can one guy get? You know, uh, you talk about, you know, the other day we were discussing on the air, who is the greatest drummer, you know, in rock and roll history? Mm. Uh, and we narrowed it down to, I think, Ginger Baker. Um, uh, um, uh, but the name, of course, uh, it's, someone said Neil, Pe- Neil Pert from, Har- uh, from Rush. But but I I said Bonzo Bonham from Led yeah. Zeppelin is the greatest rock drummer to me in yeah. the history, you know. Well
0: I'd go I'd go Ringo top just because he's something else. Um second, I'd go Bonzo. I'd go mm-hmm. John Bonham. And third, Keith Moon. I mean that's and, mine. I'm I'm going from that generation. there could right. be newer People I don't really know about. But uh, those are pretty good drummers,
1: those boys. But, Paul, why sometimes, and I know Ringo might have resented it, sometimes you, even with the Beatles, you would just go and play the drum track. Uh, In fact, many musicians have said they believe on many of the Beatles albums that Ringo, in fact, is not playing the drums many times. I mean, in certain songs, that, in fact, it's Paul McCartney. Um, There's
0: only a couple. There's only a couple of songs I play. Oh, and, I play, and I remember back in the USSR, because I think I was just trying to get a certain feel, and I was talking to Ringo about it, and he said, well, you play it. And then, uh, fatal mistake, I jump on the drums and I play it, you know. <laughs> don't say but, that to uh, you. I, it's not that. Yeah, exactly. Don't say <laughs> yeah. that to me, man. <laughs> I'll play um, it. <laughs> I'll do it. But uh, there's not that many. Uh, it's the only one I remember, so there may be two or three. But, uh, a- no, it's it's all Ringo, you know. The only time he did get blown out of the first, um, session because George Martin didn't think he was very good because we, George Martin, the professional guys are used to strict tempo. So they, right. you know, they, they want you to hold that beat and don't go off it now. Um, but we were much more fluid. So we'd kind of hold that beat and maybe just go a little bit bump, bump and come back. So and we knew when Ringo was going to you know, go a bit faster, a bit slower. And we just all went with him. So, uh, but yeah, he did, he got, uh, chucked off the first session and a session drummer came in.
1: Are you saying in other words that, um, it's very different for a guy, let's say like Ringo or yourself when you're a young musician, uh, recording in a studio is very different than live performance. A drummer can be a little bit offbeat or can do some things in a live performance that you cannot Mm. do in a studio. Same with guitar tuning and everything else in a studio. You've got to be real strict about it. And Mm. so it probably blew Ringo's mind because all of a sudden he was being held to a standard that he wasn't used to.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, we were, you know, Liverpool rock drummers and here we were coming down to London where a lot of the, the, um, stars, didn't have bands and they used session drummers who were rock solid and, and who would at least hold the beat, you know, that wasn't mm-hmm. a big priority for us. Uh, you know, we weren't that keen on holding the beat.
1: How are you, you were personal friends with, uh, Keith Moon and, uh, Bonzo Bonham. I find mm. that, um, odd because those two guys to me represent out-of-control people people who like you said when you met john you didn't like beer on his breath and here are these two wild party animals and not that you didn't get high and not that you didn't party and, and all that but these mm. are two guys who were clearly out of control um could you have a i've had friends who are alcoholics who they're nice people but you can't hang around with them for more than 10 minutes because they're drunk and it's it's mm. horrible to be in their presence mm. Um, are, are, how did you have a personal relationship with with Bonzo Bonham?
0: Um, he, they're, they're very sweet around me. Mm-hmm. This is why I always find, no matter how crazy they are, you know, oh, he throws televisions out of the hotel room window. But when he's with me, would you like a drink, old boy? Mm. And Bonham's the same, you know. Um, we just it never got crazy. For some reason, I don't know. whether was, There was a certain respect they were showing me, thinking, you know, I don't want to get crazy with this guy, or I didn't annoy them, you know. So it was like it was okay. We could just have kind of nice times, and then they'd go and get crazy somewhere else, right? And I'd I'd read about it, you know, and <laughs> I knew I knew John was uh, getting a bit crazier because he was moving on from coke to uh, heroin, and I, I do remember saying to him, hey, John, you know, just r- r- pull it in a bit, man, you know. But well, you can't do that with people. You know, they, they're going to live their own lives. But they were never crazy around me. That was the funny thing. And I, they were perfect gentlemen. They're really it's quite strange. Out of the four of you, who handled
1: fame the worst? When the fame hits, and I mean the girls are going crazy, the drugs are available, the music is flowing, the albums are generating money. Who... It seems to me you handled fame very well especially your relationship with Linda I just saw you as a grounded human being I've always said that to you was was it John who probably had to get the most out of control because of his childhood or 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 was Ringo like like who who re all of a sudden started to change
0: I think everyone got too much into Stimulants of, of one kind or another. I think it was just the times, you know, we, we all were going a bit crazy. Um, I think the person who didn't like fame the most was George. Hmm. He, he didn't really like it. <laughs> you know, it was a good ingredient to have in the group though, because it was like, I remember we were doing something and none of us were really keen to do it. I think it was like a press thing or something. And we'd be standing there. We'd all be sort of smiling and trying to do this thing we hated. And George would be going, what the fuck are we doing this for? <laughs> we're like, yeah, George. <laughs> we kind of agreed. We kind of agreed to do it. Like, well, I don't fucking walk. Don't fucking look. It's, so funny you bring- it's, fun- it's
1: yeah. It's funny you bring that up because this song... Within and Without You on Sgt. Peppers, of course, was written by George. Um, I feel it's George's statement. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. How much he disliked
0: being a Beatle. It could be. Yeah, he he wasn't that keen. That is true. I mean, he liked the fame. He liked... And in the early days, of course, we all loved it. Because, you know, no one had ever asked for our autograph before. So, you know, we'd say, yeah, you know, how many do you want? We got a sister, you know, whatever, you know, it was, uh, so we et it up. But then as time went on, it did, it did get a bit wearing, you know, because yeah. we were working, working very hard and George started not to like that. You know, uh, it was quite, uh, vocal about it. Um, I think, uh, you know, but, but well, we were all sort of pretty much on the same level of, uh, getting a bit fed up with it. I, I'd i made a decision really early on, because this is like you were saying, why didn't I just jump at the chance to be in John's group? Because I'm more careful. My personality, um, I said my upbringing, my dad would always sort of know, you know, never be under an obligation to anyone's son. You know, right. I got all of that, all of that stuff. So before I jumped into anything, I was always a little bit careful. Um, well,
1: weren't you the guy who wanted to be a school teacher? Like you had plans that maybe you know when you fantasize about your future as a kid, maybe I'll be the school teacher. And in a sense, in the Beatles, you became the school teacher because you're the guy who had to sit and, hey, guys, time to get out of bed. We got to go make an album. And uh, Ringo, you get in here, and George, come on. I, maybe you don't want to work, but let's get and John get the get the hell in here. Uh, That was your role, and I would imagine that was terribly burdensome to be the guy who's always having to nag everybody to get to work.
0: It was okay until they started to resent it. At first, they didn't really resent it, and, um, you know, the rule was whoever song it was, that person was in control. So it was John's song, he'd boss us all around. Uh, But, yeah, getting to the studio, you know, I would sort of say, hey, it's time we made an album. And I would ring up and, you know, make sure everyone was up for it. Um, but, yeah, there, there was a bit, a bit of a point where they started to resent it. And uh, so that was a bit um, off-putting for me because I thought, oh, am I being, like, too pushy? I thought I'm just trying to help us make a record, but maybe I'm being too pushy here. So I kind of backed off a bit. And then after a couple of days of that, I think Ringo said, "Well, come on, come on, produce us." (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, they kind of liked it, but they they just got there was a point they just got fed up with me. Um, And it, uh, uh,
1: but terrible role, Howard. But it it
0: all worked out. No, it it all absolutely
1: worked out. But you you know, when you look back on. It, of course, it did, and thank God you pushed those guys because maybe we mm. got one or two more albums we wouldn't have gotten. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've heard you said even the whole Sergeant uh, Pepper's concept was that you know you were getting tired, all of you, of being the Beatles. You wanted to be seen as artists. I mean, you were writing great music. You were changing the way the world looked at music and fashion and everything else. And and Sergeant Pepper's, in a way, the whole album was your statement saying. No, we're no longer the Beatles. Now we're this imaginary band, Sgt. Pepper's. And you came up with that on a plane. You were like in a dream, like you were just closing your eyes and imagining this other band. Well, no, that no,
0: it was, it was, uh, the, the times I was, I was listening to a lot of kind of, um, offbeat music, avant garde stuff, you know, crazy stuff. Um, like, you know, John Cage, who wrote a piece called what, something like 343 or something. And it's complete silence. You know, I must say, I was thinking of doing that number. My next show. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to Can you a John imagine? Cage number here. It would yeah. be great, man. Can I, you yeah. imagine? Even you would get booed. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the music. That's right? the whole trip. That's yep. the song. It's, this, this song is me getting booed. But I was, I was open to all those influences, you know. So uh, I was coming back on a plane. And um, I was with our roadie Mal, a big bear of guy, and we'd been to America for something. The two of us were coming back, and um, he he was he he said pass the salt, pass the salt and pepper, and he said salt and pepper. I said what? He said salt and pepper, and I thought he said Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> he said yeah, salt and pepper. I said so. What did you say, Sergeant Pepper? I said that's great. Wait a minute, hold that right there. So that was the idea planted. And then because I'd been listening to all this sort of alternative music, I thought, wait, what about that for an idea? You know, we'll pretend we're another band when we make this album. And the idea was when you walk up to the microphone, John, you won't be John Lennon. You'll be a guy out of this group, so you can do anything you want. I don't think it made that much difference, but the whole concept was for us to pretend to be someone else. So that's why the uniforms are on the, you know, we went down to the tailors in Soho, Bermans, we all got measured for all the suits and everything. We did it full, full tilt, you know, Um but yeah, but it, it wasn't a dream, you know, it was just a concept that I thought this could be good, you know. And it was just a way to remove ourselves from just being Beatles and, and not be fed up with being musicians, but because we were a completely different band and, uh, it kind of worked, you know, it allowed us to do crazier things than we might otherwise have done. So, I mean, the big orchestral thing in Day in the Life, the big thing that goes, that was, 'Cause I've been listening to these kind of things, you know, atonal music. And uh, so I thought, well I'll have a theory of my own, you know, and I'll start all the players on their lowest note and get them to creep up to the highest note and to make this kind of crazy sound. Um, but that was because I wasn't me. I was this guy in this other group. It free it was very freeing. Very
1: liberating, right? Because liberating, what a great idea. Yeah. Let's hang our let, let, let's hang this whole album on a concept. And mm. that liberates us, that says, you know, if, even if it's just psychological, hey, we're no longer the Beatles, so we can do whatever we want. And and something truly unique came out of that mm. concept, because mm. you didn't have to be the Beatles, even though that's just in your mind, you know.
0: Yeah, but, but it is, it was true. It worked. Um, so when George brought up the uh, Within You Without You, nobody was there going, oh, George, we don't really want any Indian music on this album. We're a rock and roll, you know. Right. It was like. It was like, yeah, come on, let's see what happens, you know. Let's, so, you know, uh, liberating was, was a good word for it. And that's Paul. how I felt on my new album, actually, Howard. Yes. No, no, but that's what I'm getting to. <laughs> segway. Um, well, little let segway me, okay, there. so
1: let me segue there, that, because that's a good point. Yeah. So you get out of the Beatles and you do the first McCartney album, which is going to be like what the album you're releasing on Friday, which is you doing everything <laughs> to me. Yeah. You know, to me, there was this thing when you came out with the McCartney album, a lot of the songs on the McCartney album were like, I don't know who said it, but would go, this isn't really a Beatles song. Like John would turn to you and here I'll, um, I think this song, this was a song you offered to the Beatles, right? Did I? I believe you did. Um, this is another song that you, uh, how about uh, Teddy boy? Teddy that Boy, was a song
0: true.
1: that you yeah, tried offered that. to, but when you say we tried that and it wasn't mm. a Beatles song, I could hear this song, Teddy Boy, on the White Album, mm. uh, just in the same way Bungalow Bill is on there. I, mm. it, this is a fantastic song. What is this bullshit about it not being a Beatles song? Was that John's nice way of saying, I don't think this is a good enough song?
0: No, 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 no. You, we tried all sorts of songs, you know, and it, sometimes you just ran out of time, you know, or sometimes, uh, you know, it it just wasn't the right moment. Um, so, you know, I I knew I had uh, other songs than the ones we were doing with the Beatles. So I threw this one in said, yeah, I've got this one. And no one went, wow, that's great. So it was hmm. like, okay, we kind of bypassed that one. Um I knew I had things like maybe I'm amazed in the background, you know. And I thought, you know, that could have been a Beatles song, but uh now you know, there's a couple. You know, of, there's a couple on my new album that could be said to be Beatles songs too. <laughs> well, well, let, well, well, let me say something about digging that? this, Robin. Yeah, yeah. no, Come I, I, I'm oh, working, working this. I'm working this. Well, just keep working it. <laughs> I don't
1: ha- what I. My angle on this is, you know, I don't have your new album here. I know it's coming out Friday. I haven't heard it yet. But oh, to yeah? me, okay. no, how would I hear it? You won't, you won't let me hear it. So um, huh. what I'm saying is it's coming out Friday. So what I'm saying hmm. is this. This is a return to where you were at when the Beatles broke up in the sense of your approach to doing this. I'm going to yeah. write all the songs. I'm going to play every single instrument. And and that makes me think about this first time you did something like this. like with Like you bring mm-hmm. up Maybe I'm Amazed. Mm-hmm. When you put that out the first time, It was not a hit song. It didn't become a hit until you performed it live um, Mm. later on. I mean, this version uh, is so beautiful. But this isn't one of those songs that you offered to the Beatles, right? This is a song that you write.
0: This was, I I had this after the Beatles, so I was kind of writing it at the end of the Beatles.
1: This is to Linda, right? Yeah, me
0: and Linda had just got together... And we were starting a family, and this was something different for me, you know. And as John was going off with Yoko, I was going off with Linda, you know. And we were, we were we were doing something different, you know. It was like I say, raising a family, getting off to Scotland, sort of playing at being a farmer. But it was it was great, you know. It was a it was a nice period. Um, so, it, it, and I think, you know, you're right to draw the, the parallel because it was liberating after the Beatles had broken up. I mean, the other alternative would have been just to sit around and get drunk, which I right. also did. But yeah. um, but I, you know, finally sort of pulled it together and thought, no, no I, I, I like music too much.
1: Paul, um, I was thinking about Linda the other day. Wouldn't she have been incredibly freaked out about the iphone Uh, talking about the camera part of it she was a photographer oh yeah Uh, i I mean can you imagine if she had that little iphone Mm. with her instead of having to lug around cameras i mean some of the pictures Mm. she took of you during that period and your family i mean Mm. thank god she did it because it's part of history now and it was great on the album um imagine if she could have seen the technology of photography now can you
0: imagine you're right Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting is that the baton's been handed to her daughter Mary, right? Who is a is a great photographer, and me and Mary. But you're right. I mean, Linda would have would have gone crazy with uh, a a a camera phone. Um, But I say uh, Mary's doing all of that now. She's like she's, you know, um, Linda took pictures for my albums, and now Mary's taking the cover of this one. And, uh, she took the Rolling Stones cover of me and Taylor Swift. She took a, she's taken quite a few things this year. So she's, I said that to her the other day. I said, this is amazing. You know, your mom did the original album and here's you. You've done this one. Wow. Talk about like time and full circle and everything. Full circle. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's great. You know, it's beautiful. And she's a really good photographer, but she, she learned a lot off Lender, obviously, but, um, yeah, she's the one with the iPhone. You know, so
1: much time is spent on who wrote what, you know, Paul wrote this, John wrote this, let's settle it, blah, 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 blah. Don't you wish him rift respect you know, on all those albums. You just put Paul McCartney on the songs you wrote and John, whatever John wrote, like it would have just been so simpler. And because, you know, and I know some of them are collaborative, like, like, um, what was it? Loosing the Sky with Diamonds is credited to John, but it, you added a lot to that song, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. it's... It, yeah,
0: I mean, you, most most of them we wrote together, even right. the ones that I would say are mine, like <clears throat> Eleanor Rigby was sort of my idea. Most of it was mine, but I took it to John because I there was a verse I needed. And right. so that kind of collaboration was always happening. Um, And John would bring something to me like day in life. You know, he had the beginning of that, but then we collaborated. Um, so so when you're, that, that was one of the great things.
1: So when you're sitting down and writing a new album at this point in your life.